Hello and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep history alive at the community level. I'm Tara Barrett, ICH researcher with Heritage NL. On today's episode, we hear from Ken Tuak, owner of NL Flagstone, which operates a quarry out of Pinsbrook. NL Flagstone produces quality masonry and landscaping stone and creates stone installations, including outdoor living spaces, retaining walls, paths, seating, stairs, etc. Ken is a level three certified dry stone craftsman and led two dry stone workshops with Heritage NL in Brigus this fall. Hi, Ken, and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for inviting me here. Uh, so just to start off, um, what kind of what got you interested or what is your background? How did you come to do rock wall, stone wall building? Uh, I guess uh, my father was a geologist and he came to Newfoundland to do his doctorate and he had quite a colorful career and then uh, he sort of retired and started a stone quarry when I was about 14 so I was there when we cut the trees off the hill and I've been involved in the business in different ways ever since so I've been involved in stonework for about 26 years now and uh, building stone walls has just been a large part of that for the whole time. And what's involved in running a stone quarry? Uh, well, there's quite a bit of equipment which needs maintenance. Uh, you have to plan where you're going to take rocks from and kind of build roads and that sort of thing. And then once you get the stones out, you got to sort it to quality. And uh, you also need to sell it, which means you have to talk to a lot of people and sort of educate them about stone and what they need and uh, calculate the correct volumes for them and make sure they get their stone. And so what, what are some of the uses that people use for the stone that you, that you have in your quarry? Uh, as opposed to an aggregate quarry which produces gravel, we're producing a dimension stone. So we sort, thing to, we sort stone to thickness, shape, size, quality, and uh, we're using that in all types of outdoor construction in terms of uh, walkways, walls, we build benches, fireplaces, fire pits. Uh, we've done some arches, and uh, you can also use the indoors for doing masonry work as well. And we've even built a little stone house, so it's a very versatile medium. So you built a house completely out of stone, or? Yes, yeah, yeah, it was my father's vision. We built it right from the footing, and it's about two stories tall, with a burn roof on it. And it took us only seven years to build. Got about four, four feet a year, and we just would work on it in between other projects, so. And you, I believe that you rent that out as like an Airbnb, is that right? Or? Uh, yes, we do, yeah, yeah. It's mostly kind of booked up in the summer times, and then in the winter we close it down due to the lot of snow maintenance and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, I believe your family has kind of been involved in stonework for several generations, is that correct? I believe there was like five generations or something? Yeah, it's five or six. It goes quite uh, far back. My, uh, my father is from Scotland, and... Up in Oray, Northern Scotland, my uh, great-great-great-grandfather built a big church up that way. And uh, my grandfather was a contractor, had several buildings. So all through the end of the line, there's been, uh, my family's been involved in stonework through one way or another. And I guess what pushed your father, I know you said he was a geologist, so what pushed him to, to do a stone quarry after he retired? I think it was uh, serendipity, he would have said. It was... Uh, he came to Western Newfoundland. He, we were in St. John's, and we moved to Western Newfoundland he said for the weather and uh, he built a house and when he was trying to landscape for the house he went looking for some stone and driving around the woods roads he found some nice boulders and being from his geological history and also from the north of Scotland with all the stonework he recognized it as a good quality stone so he went looking for the bedrock which he found 
And then did he just kind of buy a piece of land and decide to do a quarry, or how did that come about? Uh, Newfoundland, there's a quarry permit system, so you can uh, you get a permit from the government, which allows you to extract stone, and you pay a royalty based on how much stone you remove. And for the Heritage Foundation for Heritage NL, you're leading a stone wall building workshop. And I know that you've taken kind of some courses and some certifications. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, when I was younger, we were just building walls ad hoc and, uh, you know, trying to build them pretty, but without much kind of training. And uh, maybe 10 years ago, maybe a bit longer than that, I uh, discovered the Dry Stone Walls Association, which is based out of the UK. And uh, they promote best practices for building dry stone walls. They're only about 60 years old, but the association was formed from a need to protect the dry stone walls in the UK, which were being replaced with barbed wire fences. So the government of the UK provided some funding and uh, now they kind of specify, they help people rebuild, they help farmers rebuild the walls back to the original state, right? And uh, so I, I found the, um, I found the association and basically ordered their book and kind of read up on the thing. And then I was kind of practicing on my own for several years and then went off to do a few tests and I got certified. So I currently hold a level three dry stone walling certificate. And uh, yeah. And can you walk me through kind of what the different levels are or what, what's needed to get certified? Uh, the tests themselves are a time test and they each test has a different requirement. You get a roughly seven hours to strip out and rebuild a section of wall and there'll be examiners on site while you do that and just checking all the different requirements of the wall. Is there much differentiation between the different levels or is it? Right, so uh, the level one is mostly to do with uh, tying stones into the wall and uh, you putting the long axis of the stone into the bank so that you get more strength out of your wall and you kind of lean them in and then level two and each level is associated with the volume of wall you got to build so as you go up in levels you have to build the more requirements to a tighter spec faster basically and can you walk me through the process of just i guess i know with the heritage foundation or heritage nl we've built well we the first day was kind of um, a bit of a i guess a retaining wall and then a bit of a freestanding wall up top and today it's a bit more of like a retaining wall. What is, can you explain kind of how you go about building a retaining wall versus a freestanding wall? So uh, the, the construction itself is very similar. The, the main difference is that uh, where a retaining wall has one face and then behind just runs into the dirt, a uh, freestanding wall will have two faces and you can kind of build up high like a fence. And uh, so all the rules are pretty much the same, except for on a freestanding wall you have two faces, and then as you come up you'll put in some tie stones halfway up, or you know specific intervals in order to join the two faces of the wall together and help hold the thing together. So is your tie stone just to kind of go across from one side to the other? Yes, yep. And I know there was some other kind of specific terms that you used uh, over the building process. Can you explain... Like, I know there was tie stone, there was skin, there was uh, kind of very specific terminology. Yes, so when you build the dry stone wall, if you start at the ground level, you start out with your base stones, which are uh, going to be your heaviest stones, the thickest, the biggest, and uh, you lay them in the dirt. And the reason you put them down low is so you don't have to lift them up high. And also, where they're thicker, they're stronger, and they can carry more weight from the load above, and they're less prone to cracking. So you lay your base stones, and then... Uh, 
you, you meticulously and very carefully pack in behind the wall all the voids, and then you can start laying courses of stone on top of that. And after you get two or three courses of stone, uh, it's a good idea to lay some tie stones in, which will be quite long, and uh, the face that's going to be visible is going to be a lot shorter than the length usually. And you'll lay these on specific intervals, and that just helps to uh, tie the wall together and knit, knit the whole structure into something quite a bit stronger. And then on top of the tie stones, you're going to get more courses of stone, and then you'll lay a capstone, which is going to be... Uh, there's many different styles of caps, but uh, popular around Newfoundland, you would just kind of use a, something appropriate size to sort of sit on, or, uh, you know, kind of give it a bit more stability, right? Um, so that's the different components in terms of rock. Uh, the batter refers to the amount of slope if you looked down the profile of the wall. The slope leaning back into the dirt is uh, the batter. So the bigger the batter, the more slope you have in. A typical measurement is uh, 8 to 1. So if you were 8 feet tall, you'd be 1 foot in, which is, uh, that's the measure for a freestanding wall. Uh, retaining walls are 6 to 1, so 6 feet up, 1 foot in. And uh, in my own personal perspective, I think the more you slope the wall into the bank, the stronger the wall will be. And then the skin is actually referring to the face of the wall. So in a freestanding wall, you'll have one technique to build a freestanding wall is to build a double skin wall, which means two faces. Whereas the retaining wall we built today was a single skin wall. And you said that was just one technique. So are there other ways to build a freestanding wall without having two skins? Uh, yes, you can do a technique called singling, which is basically building the entire thing out of three through stones all the way up. And then uh, I'm sure there's other methods as well, which I'm not quite sure of the specific terminology. But there's there's many, many, many forms all over the world that are quite varied and colorful. The through stones, that must be, I imagine that would be difficult in Newfoundland to get enough stones of the right size to be able to do that freestanding. I imagine that would be quite difficult. Uh, well, I think if you had access to a quarry, it wouldn't be that hard. And uh, I do find... I've invited other master craftsmen here from away, and they all seem quite surprised with how many through stones we have. So I think it just depends on the geology of the stone you're picking from. But uh, as I've seen from here in Brigus, the same as back in our quarry in Pinsbrook, it's uh, quite a lot of long stones which are suitable. So. And is there, um, I guess, what type of stone is in your quarry in Pinsbrook? We are quarrying a sandstone. Uh, there's a trade name on it called bluestone, which occurs all through the Appalachian chain all the way from Pennsylvania. The Appalachian chain runs all the way up in, from the U.S. all the way into Ireland, basically. But they have similar stone in Pennsylvania, and they built quite a lot of infrastructure out of that stuff, right? So uh, bluestone, this is hard sandstone. And is there a particular stone um, that's kind of best for dry stone walling? I don't think so. They, uh, they say dry stone walls can be built out of any stone at all. It doesn't even matter the shape. If you've got length, it's easier to build walls that are stronger. But uh, even if you had kind of oval, round rocks, you can still build a nice wall. Uh, if you do have really rough stone, sometimes it limits you in terms of how steep and how tall you can build your wall. But uh, pretty much any stone is usable. And do you know, um, I guess I was just thinking, I know a lot of, or some communities around the island have... I guess dividing stone walls that are just kind of uh, rocks that have been taken out of the earth and just kind of thrown there. Is, do you know if there's a particular name on that type of wall? Uh, I don't, I'm not familiar. There might be, but 
I mean, it's similar over the north of Scotland as well, where they're clearing land to raise animals, and they'll just kind of move them into the, the walls to hold the animals in, right? So here in Newfoundland, it would be the same thing. Even around Brigus, I suspect a lot of the stone walls came from people clearing their lawns, clearing their roads. And uh, I guess it's just the natural process of what people did to survive, and I don't know if there's a particular name for that type of wall. A field wall, maybe. Yeah. And I know today um, there's a particular kind of, there was, I guess, a small hole or a small gap at the bottom of the wall out there. It was just because, I think you said there was a large, the base stone was quite large, and then there was almost like a gap um, kind of in this bottom. I'm not explaining yes, this Yes, there was well. a, we, we were rebuilding a wall, and yes. there was a, uh, when we took apart the wall, there was a large piece of bedrock which was jetting out past where the base of the wall should be, which created a large slope. So it uh, we kind of built over it, and uh, but we built over it in a particular way so the weight of the wall wouldn't sit on the slope. And what was the name of the method that was... Uh, so it's called corbling, and there's two different types of uh, ways you can do vaulting, is what they call it, right? Which a vaulting allows you to build things like arches or roofs or rooms, and... Uh, Corbeling is a method of uh, adding continual layers of cantilevers, which allows you to kind of stack up and extend an overhanging face, right? So you could build a dome roof if you wanted with corbeling, but people also do dome roofs using urchins, which I'm sure most listeners can envision, which has a keystone at the top. And I think earlier you were also kind of discussing how um, kind of the different methods for building... I guess, like a semicircle or building something like like an arch. Yep. Um, and I guess uh, one of the participants was just kind of asking if people usually use some sort of form uh, to build that, and he said that that was one of the ways in which that people built arches. I guess was to have some sort of a form. Yes, that's right. That yeah. 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 That's probably the most typical way people would have built uh, a wooden form usually, and then uh, stack up your rocks on top of that until you get the keystone in. The keystone locks the locks the structure together. Corbeling is interesting in that you don't actually need the form. You can kind of build the arch without a form underneath it. Because it's every every stone is self-supporting. And so would that have like a keystone at the top or something that went over kind of two... I'm just kind of picturing it. So if they're coming up at, with different angles, if they're coming up like... You, you were talking about how there's 15% on either side as you come up. So would the top stone kind of go over two main stones at the top? Uh, yeah, the top stone would usually link the two sides of the arch together, and uh, yeah, I, I just pick fifteen percent as a random number. I don't think that's precise, but uh, I was just looking at the rock I had laid there. But uh, yeah, generally to close in the arch, that's what you do. But it's not necessary. You could corbel it and leave it open at the top, and it would still be stable. Whereas an arch, you know, you need to have the keystone, or else it'll fall over, right? I know. You do a lot of dry stone walling, but is there anything in particular that you really enjoy making out of stone, or that you've, you know, a project that you've worked on? Uh, I think my favorite thing is to do work in public spaces. It's quite interesting to uh, see people interact with the, the work many years down the road. But in terms of a specific style or a specific construction, it's uh, I don't have a favorite one, and I just find new projects interesting in general. So anything new and anything different is interesting for me. So where kind of publicly have you built that people have interacted with it? Uh, so I do most of my work in the Humber Valley, and I've done 95% of it, and uh, 
we've done some work in the Margaret Boulder Park and up with the Captain James Cook Lookout. We've done work for Parks Canada and Red Bay. And uh, we've spotted a few benches and stuff up in the Grossmore and, and you know, that sort of things. And every now and then we'll do benches in towns and that sort of thing, right? Mm. One thing might be interesting is the, uh, I mentioned before about if you decide to build a stone wall, there's a real trade-off between the speed you can build and the strength of the wall and the the speed, the strength, and the aesthetic of the wall. And uh, I do, do think you see a lot of walls in Newfoundland that are built by private homeowners and uh, they're very nice walls, very beautiful, but you can tell they haven't built them a lot of times before. And uh, I guess you build them efficiently and quickly and they do the job, but uh, the Dry Stone Walling Association sort of finds a nice balance between speed, strength, and look that lets you uh, uh, approach the walls quickly but very strongly. And I guess um, if there's one thing or like uh, kind of an overall message for somebody who's kind of trying to build a, a dry stone wall, is there anything that people kind of need to know before they go into it? I think you would want to pick a site that's suitable for a dry stone wall. Not every place is suitable. You don't really want to put a big heavy structure on the side of a steep hill. So generally you start at the, the bottom of a slope. Uh, the other thing you want to make sure is if you have any moving water, you want to take that water away from your wall because uh, the freeze-thaw cycle will push your wall over. We actually did a little tour around here today at Landfall where we, uh, it's quite an interesting place. You can walk by and see how the walls move over time. And the majority of walls in Newfoundland will push out from the top because uh, what's happening is that the soil behind the wall will freeze and thaw multiple times each winter. And every time the water freezes, I think water, when water expands, when it freezes, it's about 300,000 PSI, which you can't really stop, right? So you'll see all these walls which overhang at the top more than the bottom. And uh, it's kind of an unstoppable force. So if a homeowner's building a wall, you want to take the water away, start at the bottom of the hill. And then the more, the, the more you increase the batter, I think the longer your wall will stand up. And I think that's the number one thing you can do for strength. And if you were building somewhere where, you know, you had to build around or over water, is there a particular, like, is there a best method to do that? Uh, I typically try to move the water away before it gets to the wall, if that's an option, uh, by putting in a trench uphill somewhere and diverting the water. But uh, if you can't do that, you can add drainage in behind your wall and sort of move it away along the footing of the wall. But you'd want to do that... Uh, you don't want to create any cavities underneath your wall, which would serve as a void, which could collapse, right? Is there anything else that you think uh, that people need to know about dry stone walling? Uh, slow and steady. The more uh, patience and attention you give it, the longer it'll stay there. So, uh, And you want to fill in the back of the wall nice and tightly with lots of, lots of attention as well. And I think if you go for it, you'll be quite satisfied with yourself for many years. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. In this next clip, Ken describes the dry stone certification exams. I focus on the batter. You want your things to slope in. And then they focus on one stone on two stones, right? And that's it. And you basically show up. There's a wall. you got to take it apart like we did and rebuild it in seven hours. Hmm. There will be a couple guys going around with clipboards, <laughs> marking your program and things. But it's quite serious. When I went up there, I showed up. And it was my first exposure to them. I was only read books and stuff up to that point. And uh, when I got there, I just... I asked him, can I 
ask a couple questions about the finer points of this and that. And he looked at me deadpan, just like your hair's been tested. And death was so 40 years old, right? <laughs> no mercy. No mercy. But the guy who uh, did my test, well, there's two of them, but one of the guys actually did the stonework for the Queen of England, which is kind of neat. <laughs> He's a 70 year old fella. And then uh, the level two test is a bigger volume. No level, yeah, level two test bigger volume. And then they gotta when you put stones on, they're not supposed to wobble. And they kind of pay more attention to how you're packing them behind and stuff like that, right? And then the targets get bigger volumes and more finesse on the face of the wall, right? Right. So most but of the but speed is a big portion of it, right? Because uh, if you don't finish, this, most of the people that fail the test, they timed out. You get seven oh, hours yeah, not done, yeah, you, yeah. you don't pass, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think the reason I do that is because <coughs> speed is an important thing if you're contracting yes. for the customers, for value for the customer, right? Yeah. So there's no point in wasting my time being really finicky, right? Cause it's, uh, so North America is mostly for aesthetic stuff, right? Stone rolling. I mean, nobody's using it to fence animals or Not animals, but there is examples in the park systems in the States still use big heavy dry stone walls as a uh, road abutments like the vehicles are driving on and stuff oh, and okay. then uh, down in Vermont the bridges they got bridge abutments even like for highway oh. bridge right okay so there is some people doing pretty serious work with the stuff right why are they using dry stone for bridge abutments uh probably because they can <laughs> there's some guys down there with the skills Oh, and and they do have a bit of a tradition of stonework there from oh, okay. when so it was being colonized and stuff. Local yeah. culture. <coughs> yeah. Well, what about cadets just across the border in Australia? Uh, I definitely heard. There would be. Yeah, I've definitely heard of some stuff up there. I don't okay. know what's going on. And in the, like, there's all sorts of functional. In Switzerland, they maintain all these dry stone walls up in the mountains to sort of divert avalanches and stuff. Mm. I think the biggest dry stone wall is somewhere around 20 meters. So it's uh, wow. There's people using it globally, and it's an active profession all over, right? Mm. Yeah. But in the UK, the government has legislation to sort of require yeah. a certain specification for dry stone walling. Yeah. It doesn't really exist in North America, I don't think. In this next clip, Lara describes her work with Heritage NL and the importance of heritage crafts today. Hi, Lara, and welcome to the show. Hi, Tara. Um, so just to start off, I was wondering if you can explain a little bit about what your job entails and um, kind of what you've been working on for the past little while. Uh, as Heritage Training Coordinator, my job is, uh, the first part of my job is to coordinate workshops around traditional heritage skills. And those might include things on the sort of construction heritage trade end of things. So that might include, for instance, heritage masonry or heritage carpentry, the things that go into our built environments, our heritage buildings. Uh, for instance, we had a, a workshop in wood window repair and restoration over the, over the past summer. So that's one part of our training skills. And the second part is um, the other kinds of skills, uh, which are in the craft world and in the, in the craft person world. So those might be things from knitting and crochet or weaving, fiber arts. It might be uh, building rock walls, uh, such as we did in Brigus and Carbonaire this past year. Yeah, so uh, this episode kind of focuses particularly on, on rock walls and, and 
you know, we've had a chat with Ken Tuak, um, and we talked a little bit about his work in Burgess. Uh, can you uh, explain a little bit more about what happened in Carbonier and how that came about? Carbonier uh, has the Rourke Store Museum um, there on Water Street in their Heritage District in their downtown area. And there was a building um, next door to the extent building that blew down, I guess, years ago or was destroyed years ago. And they had some stone left over from that building because it had uh, stone foundations that at one point they had, uh, the town had made into uh, a stone wall along the street, along Water Street next to the Rourke Store Museum. But it had to be removed because there was uh, public works being done. The, I think the sidewalk was installed and there was some snow clearing issues and that kind of thing. But they wanted to reuse that stone and, and put back another wall. So um, one of the things they thought would be useful would, would be if they had somebody who was an expert in that to show uh, municipal staff how to construct the stone wall properly. So Ken Tuak from NL Flagstone spent several days in Carbonaire with a crew from their municipal workers and uh, constructed uh, a new wall and it looks really good. <laughs> yeah. And uh, if people were interested in upcoming events or um, information sessions, workshops, uh, where would they go for, to find information? They can go to Heritage NL's Eventbrite page that's where our um, information and registration information will always be listed. If you uh, aren't familiar with Eventbrite, if you go to heritagenl.ca, right on our landing page, um, you can click on workshops and training, and that will take you straight to our Eventbrite page. Perfect. Um, and I guess one last question is kind of why is this important? Why are we, why is Heritage NL kind of uh, working towards um, some of this training and some of this mentorship and some of this, um, I don't know, passing on of these traditional skills and traditional mm -hmm. knowledge. There's such a, a variety of things that we're working on and that are on our list of crafts at risk that I guess there could be 50 answers for all of that <laughs> uh, because each one is so specific and so special in its own right. Um, but largely, I think, uh, because the connection between these things and identity and traditional knowledge and some of them of course have um, real potential for product development and tourism and and uh, economic development as well so there's a whole ra whole range of reasons to to carry on and make sure that people know how to um, do these things that need to be done uh, particularly because when Heritage NL funds um, heritage building projects, for instance, we, we need to know that there's expertise out there to, to carry that work out and to do the maintenance. And, and, and uh, so it's nice to see those trades, those heritage trades being supported. So for the, that, you're talking about kind of things like wooden windows, wooden doors, uh, wooden shingles. Heritage masonry, um, shingled roofs all kinds of skills that uh, people, you, ca you can't just go to Kent's or Home Hardware or the local hardware store all the time and, and get an off-the-shelf kit to, to put something together. You need to, to know how, how, how they were done originally in order to 
fix them properly or restore them properly. Perfect. Well, thank you. And I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll hear more about upcoming events and programs as they come. So thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Living Heritage Podcast, a co-production of Heritage NL and CHMR Radio at Memorial University. You can find previous episodes on iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. We're on Twitter at HFNLCA. Do you have a question or a suggestion about an aspect of culture and heritage you want us to explore? Send us your mail, and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming show. Email us at livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Lache Swing. Thanks for listening. <laughs>